Thanks, Amanda. Um, <clears throat> thanks for the welcome. All right, just a real brief joke. I'm going to warn you ahead of time. It is a dumb joke, okay? So be prepared. Uh, this woman that took her duck to a veterinarian, and the duck was all limp and obviously, you know, either dead or very close to death. Veterinarian laid it out on the table and examined it, and he turned to the woman and said, I'm really sorry to tell you this, but your duck is dead. And she said, well, aren't there some tests you can do just to make certain he's really gone? Because all you did was look at him. And uh, the vet says, well, he is dead, but if you insist, we can do some tests. So he goes out and he comes back in with a Labrador retriever. The lab jumps, you know, puts his paws up on the table and sniffs the duck and pokes it with his nose a few times. And then he looks at the, the veterinarian with very sad eyes, just shakes his head, gets down and trots off. So next, a cat comes in. The cat actually jumps up on the table, very gently smells the whole, the whole duck, the whole way around it, and then looks at the doctor and meows and jumps off the table and leaves. The doctor says, I'm sorry to tell you, it's confirmed your duck is dead. And then he handed her the bill for $250. And she says, $250 just to tell me my duck is dead? And he said, well, if you'd taken my word for it, it would have only cost $20. But after the lab report and the CAT scan, I have to charge you $250. <laughs> wow. Wow. You're a sharp crowd this morning. <laughs> Somebody just got it, apparently, yeah. All right, so Father, uh, we're thankful to be here today. Uh, we're thankful to be here with each other, but uh, more than anything else, we just love to gather together to be in your presence as your family. And so we just invite your presence here right now. Holy Spirit, reveal the presence of our God. Speak to our hearts. Touch us. Heal our bodies. Show us areas in our life that you want to free us in and, and, and bring just this, this wonderful, sweet joy that comes with your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so if you were here last week, you know we started a series uh, called Developing a Prophetic Culture. And if you weren't here last week, I encourage you to get that message. It's online. It's, you can listen to it on podcast because it really sets a foundation for this series and has so much to do with uh, who we are as a church and where we're headed as a church, even where we've been as a church. Last week, a, a big chunk of my message was dedicated to the notion that we really have to reorient our thinking when it comes to what uh, prophecy itself is, and because, be, th- that's based upon misunderstanding that we have about who God is. So last week, we looked at a, a verse that said, where Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And one of our foundational truths at this church is that Jesus reveals to us everything we need to know about God. And if there's something in the Bible that I look at and I don't really understand it or it looks, it looks you know, like harsh or cruel, I need to look at that through the lens of Jesus and say, Jesus reveals to me who God is. And that incident or that story that I'm looking at, I'm just, somehow I'm not understanding it right. Someday I will. But Jesus shows us who God is. And I want to take us back to that thought again today and look at it from just a slightly different angle. But... Uh, and part of this is 
this whole concept of God's goodness is foundational to everything in life. Not just prophecy, but to all ministry. It's foundational to any one of us obeying Jesus, loving Jesus, walking with God, raising families that that are going to be exposed to the truth of the gospel and, and grow to love Jesus. This is foundational stuff that we have to get. And so in Hebrews 1, there's a verse that reiterates this same truth in a different way. The truth that Jesus is everything we need to know about God. In Hebrews 1 and verse 3, it says this. The Son, that's Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature. And so the Son does two things. He, he radiates the glory of God. You think of God in his glory. Uh, the Bible says that God, God dwells in unapproachable light. His glory is just incredible. Jesus fully reveals the glory of God to us. And Jesus is the exact representation of the nature of God. And so if you think God is harsh, if you think God is angry with sinners, if you think God is just looking for opportunity to judge people, look at Jesus and ask yourself, was Jesus like that? And was Jesus kind? Was he compassionate? Did he care about people and and express love? Was he gentle or was he harsh and judgmental and vindictive? I mean, let's admit it. A lot of us have a view of God that not only does God judge sin, but he's a little bit vindictive about it. He's kind of angry. He's upset and people have dishonored him and he has to somehow stand up for his honor. And so he has this sense of vindictiveness about him. We saw a verse last week that really answers that in the Old Testament where it says, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So if God was vindictive, then that would mean he would take pleasure when people die that don't know him. Or he would take pleasure in bringing judgment to people that reject him. But he, but he doesn't. And so we see in Jesus the fullness of who God is. So just two illustrations that I think are, are things that maybe we can relate to today. Um, with, uh, with, with all of the financial scandals that we've experienced as a culture, the, the Madoff scandals and and most recently, uh, Wells Fargo and the false bank accounts that they set up. And then reading about the bank president, or the president, I think, is stepping down. And what did he give up? Like, took a reduction in salary of like $59 million. I mean, it was just incredible. But, but we look around and we see this excessive wealth. And in, in our culture today, it seems like there's this growing kind of resentment towards that. But let's ask this question. How would Jesus deal with somebody who was excessively wealthy, who did not care about the poor, and who loved his money more than he loved God? How would Jesus respond to that? Well, we have an illustration of that actually in the Bible. There was a young man that came running up to Jesus one day, and he said, how can I inherit eternal life? And they interact for a few moments, and then Jesus says, there's just one thing lacking for you. He said, you have to sell your wealth and give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. Now, first of all, that was very possibly an invitation to, to, to an apostolic ministry. Matthew heard the same call, and Matthew didn't sell everything he had, but, but he, um, he gave half of what, what, he, what he had away. And in this case, Jesus is saying to this young man, 
you love your money more than you love God. And so you've got to step, you've got to step past that and you've got to give that up so that you can love God in the right way. But, but it says then that that man left and he was very sad because he had great wealth. Okay, so what you see in that is this guy didn't really care about the poor and he really didn't care about a relationship with God. He loved money more than God. How did Jesus respond to that? How would Jesus, at a heart level, we read in the Bible in, Matthew, or in Mark 10, 21, it says this. It says, looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. As he's interacting with this man, as this man is rejecting truth, as this man is showing a hard heart towards the poor, it says Jesus looked at him and he felt, he, he, he felt the emotion of compassion and love in his heart towards this man. Now, another illustration that shows us how Jesus responded to people that were not really walking with God. In another illustration, I think, that relates to us today, racism is a real issue today. And, uh, and so let me ask this question. How would Jesus respond to a city or a town that is so racist that they would reject someone, not give them a meal, not, not, not allow them to stay in any of their hotels, but reject them purely based upon ethnicity. How would Jesus respond to that? Well, we have an illustration of that in the Bible too, because as Jesus is making his final trip to Jerusalem, they come through Samaria, they come to a Samaritan village, and when the Samaritans saw that they were going to Jerusalem to worship, the Samaritans and the Jews had conflict over, uh, over worship, and, and they, they were constantly at odds with each other. And the Samaritans refused to give Jesus even food or housing. And what happens in that case is two of his apostles, James and John, they say this. They say, do you want us to call down fire from heaven and consume this village? Now, that's kind of a human response, isn't it? That's what we would think. If, if, a, if a whole town is that racist, then they deserve judgment. They deserve to be obliterated. And, and so James and John come up with that idea. And I think one thing is pretty uh, incredible is that they actually had enough faith to think they could do this, that they would ask Jesus. And so that's pretty amazing right there. But they were so far off the mark, and Jesus uh, rebukes them. It says this, he turned and rebuked them. Now, the rest of this verse is probably added, but it does appear in some uh, translations. And he says this. He says, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. He's saying, you guys, you're missing. You don't understand the heart of God. You know, God, God didn't send me into the world. It's not God's intent for me to come here and obliterate people. God sent me here to save people. That's the heart of God. It's redemptive. It's filled with love and compassion and kindness and goodness. And so with that kind of as the background, we can enter into an understanding really of ministry and particularly a prophetic ministry. But, um, but one thing still remains, and that is just a very brief review of last week's uh, message, it, it, the part where we talked about the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, people were saved by faith. That meant they believed in a coming Messiah. 
Jesus hadn't come yet, but if they believed what God revealed to them, the extent that he revealed to them that there's a coming Messiah, then they were forgiven, they were saved, they became part of God's family. But because Jesus hadn't yet died on the cross and risen from the dead, they didn't get new hearts at that point. They weren't regenerated like we are today. And because of that, the Holy Spirit did not live inside of them. He lived in a temple, and it says that the Holy Spirit was with them, but not in them. So in the Old Testament, as in the New, people had problems in their lives. There was junk, there there was greed, avarice, uh, lust, all sorts of things happening in people's lives. And the prophets spoke to the junk. They spoke to the issues in people's lives and in the corporate life of the nation. And, they, and it came across like this. Stop doing that. Don't do that anymore. Start doing this instead. In fact, if you keep doing that, you're headed for trouble. Because the way things are designed, if you keep going on that path, you're just going to experience pain and grief and suffering. And so we look at all of that and we think, man, it's kind of negative because it's constantly pointing out things behaviorally that needed to change. And so we look at Old Testament prophecy and we think, well, yeah, they were, those prophets were hard on sin. And, and they, really, they really took it to people and told them straight up what they needed to do. And in the New Testament, because sin is paid for, sin is obliterated, it's taken, it's gone Therefore, Jesus rose from the dead, and with Jesus' resurrection from the dead, everyone now that believes in Jesus rises from the dead with him. We get new hearts, resurrection hearts, heaven hearts. Uh, The Bible says we're new creations. And so we still have junk in our lives, but prophecy today, if it is pointing out the junk, it's doing it with the intent of touching the heart. And more than anything else, prophetic words today try to maneuver past that junk to get to the heart. Because there's gold in that heart. It's a new heart. And if you can touch that new heart with the love of God, with the truth of God, then coming out of that new heart, the junk will, the junk will disappear. And so it's not that we never refer to the junk. It's not that we're never strong in referring to the junk. But... If that's the case, it's because we've already spoken to the heart over and over and over again. And so prophetic words today take on a different tone because of that. And 1 Corinthians 14.3 says, The one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Three things. Strengthen, encourage, and comfort. Let's say those three things together. Okay, the three words, strengthen, encourage, and comfort. Ready? Strengthen, encourage, and comfort. All right, again, strengthen, encourage, and comfort. Now, when we see that, then uh, we're in position to really understand a definition for prophecy, which is speaking God's message at the moment to a person or group. It's real simple, simple definition. Speaking God's message at the moment to a person or or a group with the intent of bringing about strengthening, encouraging, and comforting. Now, in 2012, uh, a man in our church who has some pretty strong prophetic gifting came to me and he said, I really felt like God said this about our church. And the message he gave me was this. He said, I really felt like God's saying that he is doing a new thing here. 
But it's not really new. He's just returning us to our roots. All right, that was in 2012. It was just about the time that this kind of new wave of the Holy Spirit started to, started to blow through this church. And we started to see more and more healing and presence of God and uh, evangelism that's accompanied with God's power. And, and so that was a very positive thing to say, wasn't it? You know, God's doing a new thing. It's not really new. He's returning us to our roots. Now, I want to propose to you that Dan got that message kind of pressed into his brain, and then the wording that it came with went through his heart, mind, and spirit, and it came out that way. But another person gifted prophetically who believes that God is harsh and angry might have given that very same message in different tone and in different words. For instance, something like this. You've abandoned your roots. You have not been good stewards of God's blessing and God's heritage. But God is so merciful that he's going to give you one last chance. Don't blow it. Don't disappoint God again. Pretty similar message delivered in two totally different ways. One of them through the the lens of a person who believes God's harsh and vindictive and judgmental and angry at us most of the time. The other given through the heart and the mind and the spirit of a person who realizes that Jesus represents who God is to us. And if Jesus wouldn't put it that way, then we're not going to put it that way either. And, And so prophetic ministry is powerful. It releases the life of God. When, when you speak the words God once spoken at the moment, something as simple as God loves you can just bless a person and shake them to their core with God's presence and renew their heart and their mind and their spirit. Now, there's a verse, a passage that is just really crucial to what attitude we should have as a church body towards prophetic ministry, and that's in First Thessalonians 5. So we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 19 to 22. Um, A lot lot is said in these short verses. First, he says this, do not quench the spirit. And then he says, do not despise prophetic words, but examine everything. Hold tight to everything that appears good or that proves true. Reject what appears to be of no value. So start off, do not quench the spirit. All right, the word quench is translated different ways, to restrain, to stifle, to dampen, to suppress. Literally, the word means to quench a fire. It literally means to put a fire out. And so he's saying, the Holy Spirit is a fire. Do you know what happens when fire burns? What's happening is there is a release of energy that's taking place. That when... When a material comes to a certain level of heat, then the atoms start to do something in there that just releases energy. And so the Holy Spirit is referred to as a fire different places in the Bible. And the Holy Spirit is the one who releases the energy of the kingdom, who releases the life of God. And he says here that we have the ability to quench that. We have the ability to suppress the, the life and the fire of the Holy Spirit. And he says, don't do it. Now, what is it that we do 
that quench the spirit that we need to stop doing. And apparently in uh, Thessalonica, they were having some trouble with their view of prophetic words. Maybe there had been some abuse. Maybe people had been pretending they had words from God and they really didn't. Maybe people gave words to people and those people naively acted on the basis of those words and somehow it, it ended up hurting them in life. You know, any number of things could have been happening. But he says this. He says, the way we quench it is by despising prophecy. He says, don't despise prophetic words. Now, to despise means to scoff at something. It it means to have like a cynical attitude towards something, to see it as worthless. So he's saying, don't view prophetic ministry as worthless. Don't scoff at it. Don't be cynical towards prophecy. You know, people would say, well, been there, done that. Yeah, I remember the 70s and the prophetic movement, and it did this, that, and it was hurt people, and blah, 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 blah. Okay, all right, good, well enough. Let's learn from that, but let's not despise prophecy because of it. You know, human beings mess stuff up all the time. And when we see human beings mess up gifts like this, That doesn't mean that we're free then to just reject it. Don't despise it. Don't look down on it. Don't think less of it. Don't think cynically towards it that, well, I've never seen a prophetic word that's ever come true. Or someone gave me a prophetic word and it seemed to be wrong. And it it didn't come about and I still haven't seen it come about. And so uh, don't give me any of that prophecy stuff. That happens. And sometimes it is just simply that we, we, didn't, we really didn't weigh that prophetic word. That's what he says to do. He says instead of being cynical towards it, he says examine everything. Examine it. Now examine it doesn't mean prophetic word reject. Examine it means prophetic word, okay, let me take that. Let me take that in my hands and let me look at it. To examine it, I have to take time. I have to get it up close and I have to look at it carefully. Uh, the, the word assay, you know, an assayer was someone who um, took chunks of rock that the uh, gold miners would bring out of the mountains and they would look at, they would determine, is there really gold in this? They weren't looking at that chunk of rock to reject it. They were looking for gold. They were looking for the good thing. And so when we're examining prophetic words, I'm examining a prophetic word. Man, I want to find out, God, are you in this? Are you in this? Because if you are, I don't want to miss it. And so to examine is, uh, is, is the, the clear thing that we need to do. Look at it, consider it, ponder it. And then he says, hold tightly to the ones that are good. Hold tightly to the ones that prove true. You know, the gold miner that comes down and the assayer says, yeah, there, there's gold in this. That, that guy grabs hold of that and you better believe he protects it with his life and he holds on to it tightly. And when we get a word that proves true, then you hold on to it. And why do you hold on to it? Well, because in the future, you're going to need it. In the future, something's going to happen and you're going to need to go back to that moment and say, oh, right, God, you said this to me at that moment. And so I'm going to keep on going. When Lori and I were first exposed to prophetic words, had no idea about any of this. We're, we're just, we've just decided that prophecy is still allowable as a gift. 
And we're in this meeting with 200 pastors and their wives. And a, a, a highly gifted prophetic man stood up. And at the very outset, first thing he said was he pointed at us. And we're like thinking, what's going on? You know, we're looking behind us to see, you know, who's he pointing at? And actually, there was a wall behind us. We knew that. But still, at that moment, I was hoping that maybe I was wrong. There's not a wall there. He's pointing at someone else. And he called the two of us up front. And, you know, the first thing he did, they, they say that prophets can read your mail. That means that they, if they can read your mail, that means they know things about your life. So first of all, he starts talking to us about the lives we've lived and, and experiences we've had. And he's just right on target, right across the board for, for me and for Lori. And, and then he says this. He says, when I walked past you earlier, I saw the two of you in a jet aircraft on an aircraft carrier. And you were about to be launched. He said, it was an F-14. I was in the, the pilot seat. Lori was right behind me in the RO seat. He said, what that means is... She's going to get messages from God and pass them on to you, and then you're going to fly the plane. But he didn't know that we were looking for where we were going to move, that I had resigned the church in Michigan, that we knew the gifts of the Spirit were potentially alive today. We've got to find out what that means. And he didn't know any of that, and he gives us this word. And then at the after the luncheon, he came up to me and he told me this privately. He said, I didn't share this publicly, but he said, I also, in the vision I had, I saw you land the plane. And he said, that's the most dangerous part is landing a plane on an aircraft carrier. And he said, what that means is God has guaranteed the completion of your mission. And boy, I got to tell you that that thought, okay, God, you've, you've guaranteed, we're going to complete our mission. That's going to happen. And in times I've wanted to quit, in times when I felt like I was just messing everything up, uh, I mean, you may not, there there are times we've had staff resignations. 2011 had eight out of 14 staff members resign within like three or four months. And when that happens, you know, you look at the top guy and you say, man, you're doing something wrong. And it's hard to keep going. But that word, we held on to that tightly. And in times like that, When you want to quit, you go back to that and you say, wait a second, God, you spoke this to us. We can't quit. We're going to keep on going because it it strengthens your heart then. Does that make sense? So you hold on to those words that you get. Even if you don't understand them, you hold on to them. He does say reject reject what is of no value. And, And what that means is that if someone's praying for you or someone gives you a prophetic word and it just seems to grind on you, unless... Unless it has to do with some disobedience in my life. Uh, if, it's, if they give me a word that just grinds and it just doesn't seem right, then you're free to say, no, nah, I reject. I don't say it to the person, but I would just say, it, you know, Lord, I, I reject that. I, I remember one time someone praying for me and they started going off praying for our marriage. And it was, um, this was years ago. And they're praying things that make it sound like, wow, you know, Lori and I are on the brink of splitting up here. And... And I knew it was all wrong, and I'm just, I'm, I'm just thinking, okay, Jesus, that first part I accept, this part I reject. I, this, this is not of from you, I know. And I was with a guy once who we were praying for a man that was sick, and he prayed for the guy, and he said, oh, God, thank you that, that you knew Joe was strong enough to handle this illness, and that's why you gave it to him. And, man, when we left there, I took him aside, and I said, don't ever do that again. 
You're praying a curse over him. You aren't, you aren't encouraging him and blessing him. And so if you get something like that, you, ju- you reject it. You just say, I, you know, in your heart to God, I don't receive this. And, and so th- th- this is, we're going to talk more about that in coming weeks. How do, you, um, uh, how do you judge words and how do you assess whether they're right or not? But just to give you a little bit of an idea of it. Now, uh, there's a pivotal moment in redemptive history in Acts 2. And it's, it's really crucial to the whole thing. Because in the Old Testament period, there were prophets. There were just a few people that were gifted as prophets. And they, they experienced dreams and visions and words of knowledge and words of wisdom, as Dave King's going to talk about this next week. But there's a broad sense in which prophetic ministry describes any ministry that has to do with revelation from God. So discernment, tongues and interpretation... All of those things come under the the broad sense of prophetic ministry. And then there is the specific sense of prophetic ministry, which is speaking what God wants spoken at the moment. Now, in uh, in the New Testament, that's turned upside down. In the Old Testament, just a few people gifted prophetically. In the New Testament, here's what we read. Uh, Peter is preaching, and he's talking about the um, event on Pentecost where the Holy Spirit came and flooded onto these believers and they're praying in tongues and they're prophesying and all sorts of stuff's happening. And, and he says, in the last days, by the way, the way, the last days are from the moment Jesus rose from the dead until the moment Jesus returns. Okay, that's what last days are. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Old Testament, Holy Spirit with them, but not in them. And now I'm going to pour out my spirit on everyone, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Now, we live in an age where the Holy Spirit is not only poured out upon, but comes into every believer. And when that happens, what that means is all of us can hear God speak. Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. So we have the ability to hear the voice of Jesus. And sometimes Jesus gives us stuff for ourselves. And sometimes he gives us stuff to pass on to others. Someone might say, well, why? Why doesn't he just give it all to us? Well, because he wants us to be connected it went, when, when, when I minister to you and, and prophetically, it blesses your heart, but it draws our hearts together. Last night at the uh, house group meeting, house group service here, uh, a young man stood up here uh, and he shared this. He said that he went to the Westchester house group a few weeks ago, was invited to go there, not sure why he's going, but he gets there. And they're worshiping, and he's not interested, doesn't want to worship, doesn't want to be part of that. But then somehow he ended up in a group of just a couple of other guys, and and they were going to share together and talk and do whatever God led them to do. One of them looked at him, and, and he's here discouraged, okay? He's discouraged about life. One of them looked at him and said, you know, I looked at you, and I saw a picture of a rose over top of your head. And and then just, I, th- I think what God wants wants to say to you is that there's a blessing for you in that. 
And then he says, then the young guy sharing his story said this. He said, I have a daughter named Rose. And she's the greatest blessing in my life. So prophetic word. I saw that rose over your head and I think God wants to say to you that this is a blessing. He wants you to know he wants to bless your life. And so it just touches the guy's heart. The other person says, you know, I have a sense that there's some anxiety and fear that you're experiencing around money. And maybe, maybe you've gotten in debt somehow. And, you know, my sense is there's like a $5,000 debt that you're really burdened about. And so the guy came there worried about money. He said when he got home, he tallied up what his debt actually was. It was just about $5,000. And so he gets these prophetic words given to him in love and kindness and, and no condemnation. And then they pray for him. And he says, you know, when they prayed for me, all the burdens left. All the, I, I just felt this release and this freedom and this joy. And then they started worshiping downstairs. And he's saying, hey, guys, we got to quit this because I want to get back down there to worship. So, you see, there's, there's a way prophetic ministry can happen from any one of us. Any one of us can engage in prophetic ministry. And that doesn't mean that we're all gifted as prophets. There is the gift of prophet where that's a person's primary gifting and input to the body of Christ. And you might say, well, I'm not that, so how can I prophesy? Well, I I would say this. I'm not a carpenter, but I have a hammer. I have saw. I have drills in my house. I have um, screws and nails of every size. I'm not a carpenter, but I still do. I mess with it. I do carpentry work around the house. How many here do? Okay. Come on, everybody does. You all have a hammer in the house, don't you? Okay. My mother has a hammer in the house, okay? My 88-year-old mother. Uh, You know, I'm not a chef, but I cook. I'm not a seamstress, but I've been known to sew buttons on things. And So you might not be a prophet, but you still engage in prophetic ministry at times. And so it's something that we all need to recognize that it's a gift that's released to the body of Christ today, and it's an incredible blessing. Now, one last passage we're going to look at, and we'll come back to this one in the future, but this describes a prophetic culture, all right? In 1 Corinthians 14, in, in the church in Corinth, they had become obsessed with this gift of tongues, and so they had all this crazy stuff going on with the gift of tongues, and they thought it was the best gift, and and a, and, a, and a whole bunch of stuff around it. But here the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, if therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and an outsider or an unbeliever enters, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider. And the word outsider literally means ungifted. In other words, it's a believer, but they haven't really engaged with Holy Spirit gift ministry. Enters. He is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Now, I used to view this like this. I thought, okay, if someone comes in and we're all standing here in worship and there's a, an interlude in the worship and you know, three-fourths of the people here are, are worshiping God in tongues, in their prayer language, that a person comes in and sees that, they're going to think we're crazy. 
But if they come in and we're all standing here prophesying, they're going to, you know, they're going to have a different um, impact. But it can't be that. Because we wouldn't all stand here and prophesy all at once. We wouldn't all just stand up and all start prophesying at once. And therefore, he can't be referring to tongues as being something that we're all doing at once. Here's what I think he's saying. I think he's saying this. If when that new person pulls into the parking lot, the lot attendant sees them coming and says, Hey, good morning. Great to have you here. But they do it in tongues. Okay, you get that? You know what tongues? tongues? Tongues is a spiritual gift that God gives us, primarily a prayer language, an individual prayer language, heart-to-heart communication with God through the Holy Spirit's um, empowering. And, but so let's say they use their prayer language to welcome the person. And then that person's coming in, uh, in into the auditorium, and the person that greets them greets them in tongues, in some other language, a different language. And then when the person gets up to do the announcements, they come up and they just stand there and babble on in their tongues. Now, tongues is not babbling, but to that person, that's what it would seem like. So what he's thinking is, you guys are crazy. You know, I, what, what, you know, what madhouse did I come into here? When the greeting time happens, people come up, come up to this person and welcome them here, but they do it all in a, a, a prayer language that the person has no idea what it is. They're going to think you're crazy. Now, what if that person out in the parking lot is aware that their primary task, their primary role is not to get cars parked, but it is to welcome the presence of God here? What if that person views themselves as a person who carries the presence of God and they are they're, they're sensing God's presence and they're trying to sense what God's doing around them and they see a car come in and they walk down to that car just to welcome the person because they felt attracted to that person. Then the simple statement, hey, welcome, it's great to see you, good to have you here today. That could be a prophetic word. That could be a word that comes just with the unction and blessing and presence of the Holy Spirit. And when they come through the door and someone else there welcomes them and they're in that same frame of mind of God's presence. We're a people of God's presence. We are a place of God's presence. And I'm aware of that. And, and, I, and, and I'm not trying to act religious. You don't have to say hallelujah. You don't have to say praise Jesus. You don't have to say, oh, Jesus loves you or anything like that. It's just a good-hearted flow of the Holy Spirit welcome. And then even, hey, everyone, let's worship. That can, that can release like prophetic anointing. When the person does the announcements, it can release prophetic anointing. Does that make sense? So that the whole culture is a place of God's presence where people are coming into encounter with God. And then when it says convicted, it means convinced. It doesn't mean like convicted in the sense of pointing your finger at people or anything like that. And the secrets of the heart might be some secrets I'm holding that, that uh, I don't want anyone to know about, that I need to confess. Or it might just be some secret dream I have about the future. But at any rate, what it leads to is people come to know Jesus. And a prophetic culture is a culture that is radically outwardly focused. Because a prophetic culture wants prophecy. It wants all of these gifts. But but it wants to make sure it happens in a way that that new or ungifted person can come in and just be impacted by being in God's presence 
without having to interpret a whole bunch of weird things that happen or anything like that. And so does this make sense? Okay, so what we're called to be is a prophetic church, a church with God's presence. Another way we could put it is we're presence-driven. If you're more comfortable with that, think of it that way. We're presence-driven. It's just a prophetic ministry releases the presence of God into the church body. And that is what brings people into the life of Jesus. So what we're going to do now, we're going to go into a time of worship. And um, to to start that, we're going to share in communion. And communion is a time when... um, we celebrate the death burial. Yeah, the, don't, the servers don't need to get up yet, okay? You can just stay where you are for right now. Um, it's a time when we celebrate the death of Christ. And we're going to take that little wafer, and it represents Jesus' body. He said, this is my body. We're going to take the, the juice. This represents his blood. He said, this is my blood. And when we do this, we, we, we come with the expectation of God to reveal his presence to us. So Amanda's going to come up and lead us through uh, preparing for communion and uh, entering into worship.